0: politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the Ageless Wisdom. It is the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. Stay tuned as we explore consciousness, the fundamental nature of reality. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Banner.
1: And good afternoon, welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on 90.7 FM, KPFK in Los Angeles, serving all of Southern California from Santa Barbara to San Diego, and of course we also stream to the world on kpfk.org. This program is podcast as the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and we post to YouTube also under that same title. So if you ever miss one of our live programs here, Tuesdays at one o'clock on KPFK, you can pick it up after the fact. Last week, we were a couple of days in front of the January 6th anniversary, the insurrection at the nation's capital. And so my comments were rather brief. I uh, thought I'd wait until this week, today, to do some extended comments now that the first anniversary of January 6th has passed. So I'm going to do that and uh, spend a few minutes speaking about my understanding of the import of what happened a year ago. And then we do have a guest for you today, a great guest, calling us from the Big Island of Hawaii, uh, Amy Elizabeth Gordon. She's the author of a book about Relationships, well, about her life as well. It's a very revealing book, but we'll be talking primarily about relationships and communication, and all kinds of relationships. I mean, at work, at play, but primarily your most intimate relationship, your relationship with your husband, your wife, uh, your your partner, your spouse, and uh, it's it also influences the way you treat your kids and the way you talk to your parents as well. So I'll bring Amy on after the break, but I want to spend a few minutes talking about January 6th. And the fact that there are a little over 700 people that have been charged with various crimes for whatever violence they perpetrated on that day. And I have mixed feelings about this. Sometimes I think, gosh, we're making a big deal out of the fact that the former president managed to find 700 goons to attack this capital. But even among the several thousand people that were part of that demonstration, it was uh, maybe a couple of hundred that went into the Capitol, the most deplorable uh, these are the people that frighten us the most. I think we see the videos of uh, policemen and police women being beaten. A hundred and forty of them, Capitol Police and DC Police, injured. Uh, five have since died, one of a heart attack. Uh, some were tased. Some uh, had acid sprayed in their faces. Others were beaten with flagpoles carrying American flags. Confederate flags, don't tread on me flags, and even Blue Lives Matter flags. The insanity of it all is uh, a little hard to, uh, to comprehend. And so this is not the entire Republican Party. And this is certainly not the 70 million people who voted for the Tangerine president. So... I think any discussion of January 6th and our concern about the far right going beyond conservatism to neo-fascism is something that we need to spend a few minutes on. I think we even need to talk a little about what fascism is because fascism is not a government. It's not a form of government. Fascism is a movement. The word in Italian, it means bundle or, or a group, like a, a bundle of sticks that you would tie together. It's a group. Fascism is a movement. And what it promotes, of course, is an authoritarian, autocratic form of government, dictatorship, tyrants, and, and despots. But fascism is just the movement. so. When we talk about the far right being a neo fascist movement, or more simply, just a fascist movement, we're not just name calling. These are accurate labels that definitely apply. But my point here is that not everybody who voted for the former president, for the Tangerine Man, is a fascist. There are not 74 million fascists in America there are tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, hundreds of whom were involved in the insurrection. Now, we have a problem with the whole Republican Party at the highest levels, United States senators and members of the House of Representatives who have gotten on board, but we need to keep in mind that This is simply their desire to stay in power. They're afraid if they say what they really think or how they really feel, if they admit that the presidential election in 2020 was legitimate, they're going to lose votes, a lot of votes, and may not be in office. So they're just lily-livered and spineless. They're not fascists. They support a fascist movement. And, and so these people need to be held accountable. They need to be called out. But here's my point. The more stressed, the more anxious, the more fearful that we become, the more likely we are to lose our creativity and have it replaced by an either-or, all-or-nothing mentality whether we're politically left, right, center, or don't give a hoot about politics. Binary thinking, false dichotomies, the tendency to bifurcate everything into all or nothing, this or that, all differences are opposites. It's a function of high anxiety, stress, fear by any name. And there's plenty of fear to go around. Everybody's afraid. Everybody's afraid of the other, whoever that may be. The right's afraid of the left, the left's afraid of the right. And so we have this problem with binary thinking. And again, the idea that, well, anybody that voted for Trump must be a fascist, must be a racist, must be a nationalist, must be on board with destroying democracy and replacing it with some sort of dictatorship, and that's just not true. So my appeal today, as we look back on a year ago and the seditious insurrection in Washington, and really, it really was that. It was an attempt to overthrow a legitimate election, not simply for the purpose of one-party defeating the other party, but of supplanting democracy with an autocratic dictatorship. There's just no question about that. But again, we're talking about a few thousand people led by hardcore racists, the Proud Boys, racist, nationalist, anti-Semitic, and uh, very misogynistic. It is the Proud Boys. It's not the proud men and women or the proud boys and girls. It's a very chauvinistic and misogynistic group, as well as being supporters of white nationalism, white supremacy. But we need to be careful about using a broad brush and being so terrified and so disgusted with anybody that refuses to see things as you and I may labeling them as fascist as well. Using too broad a brush in generalizing about everyone who's not you, everyone who's on the right, everyone who identifies themselves as conservative. There are as many reasons for people voting the way they voted as there are people voting. Some are one-issue candidates. Many people are just casting votes against the other. Some people are Republicans or Democrats because their family has always voted Republican or Democrat. They just don't even think about the candidate. They have no idea what the policies are or what the issues are about. They've just always voted this way or that. And of course, the fact that we only have two political parties feeds into this binary way of thinking that we only have two choices. Well, in politics, maybe you do, maybe a third party is a fantasy, but third way, middle way thinking is imperative and we can't use too broad a brush. In other words, if we are to avoid civil war, and I'm serious about this, we're going to have to recognize the humanity in people who disagree with us. Yes, some of them are hardcore racists. Some are dangerous fascists. Many of them are armed and ready to use those weapons. This is very real, but it's not everybody that voted for the Tangerine Man. So we have to be smart. We have to be critical thinkers and look at the right. And anyone who disagrees with what you see as common sense decency, peace, and social justice policy issues. And understand that many of them are just afraid. They're afraid in many of the same ways that you and I are afraid. They're afraid of different things. But we need to be careful about generalizing and throwing everybody that we we disagree with into the same bucket. That's my appeal. Get to know people you disagree with talk to them. Instead of telling them how to think, ask questions. Why do you believe this? The person who answers the question feels like they have the attention. They have the power. They're getting heard and understood. They love that you're asking questions of them, especially if you do it in a respectful and diplomatic way. And yet it's the one who asks the questions who guides the conversation. There's extraordinary power in you committing yourself to being curious about why people disagree with you politically, in terms of religion or other social issues. Ask. Everything doesn't have to be an argument and doesn't have to be settled. And no, you don't need to be right understanding is always superior to being right. And with that, let's take a short break and we'll come back with my guest. Stay tuned, you're listening to 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles. And we're back with the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK in Los Angeles, 90.7 FM for all of Southern California And, of course, streaming for the world at kpfk.org. I want to remind you, if you ever miss a show here on KPFK, uh, this program is podcast. Most of our programs actually are. Ours is podcast under the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. And I also post it on YouTube. Same title. Just search for Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. But... Thanks for joining us on KPFK, Tuesdays at 1, because, uh, well, there is a group mind. I've mentioned this before. I think it's really true. You know, when two or more are gathered in my name, that kind of thing, (laughs) I think you can feel it if if you sit with the live broadcast, so I appreciate you being here if that's the case. I've got a program for you today, as I mentioned, on relationships. This is important. We are social creatures. Ideally, we shouldn't need to be in relationships, but if we're healthy, we're in touch with an aspiration uh, to be in relationships. We want to be in relationships. There is such a thing as codependence where that becomes a need and unhealthy but that's another show for another day. We're not going to talk about codependence, more about healthy relationships. And my guest today is the author of a book called Moonshot. And she'll explain that title for us. Aim high, dive deep, and live an extraordinary life. Joining us today from the Big Island in Hawaii Amy Elizabeth Gordon. Amy, good afternoon, and welcome to KPFK.
0: Mm, Mahalo nui loa. Great big thanks, Michael. I'm delighted to be here with you.
1: And aloha to you as well. We were chatting just before we went on the air about our uh, five years on Maui, my wife and I, and uh, how extraordinary that was. And because she had children and grandchildren by another marriage, she she missed them. Not to say I didn't, but you know, uh that's why we came back to to the mainland, but uh my uh my heart remained. Tony Bennett's heart stays in San Francisco, mine in Hawaii. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And uh I learned so much about uh love and life from the Aloha spirit. So it's a pleasure to uh astrally be with you. Uh, today. How'd you come to write this book about relationships called Moonshot?
0: Ah, thank you for asking. I felt if I didn't write Moonshot, uh, it was going to eat me alive. (laughs) It was such an intense uh, process of really digesting more fully the life experiences that shaped who I am as a sober woman of integrity who's endeavoring to really live this, as you say, the aloha spirit, uh, to weave the lay of aloha around the world, one relationship at a time. And I really felt um, the great good fortune of being here in Hawaii with, with the opportunity to pause and to breathe and to reset. And in that process, I, um, I set a very specific timeline of of getting my stories down on the page, it was a, a an intense process. Um, Moonshot is what's called a transformational memoir, so it is it is a teaching memoir, and it's transformational in that it walks you through um, some of the more intense and traumatic times. I call them the dark neighborhoods of my mind, and kind of gets to where I am now. So. To answer your question more succinctly, I had to. It felt like a, a true inner calling that if I didn't, I would have some, some uh, serious consequences. <laughs> so that's why I wrote
1: it. Didn't I hear or read somewhere that you were born on the day of the first moonshot?
0: Yes, that's the title. That's the origin story there. So um, my parents, um, Betty and Dan, had been married for some time, four, four kids already four boys running around on the beach um, at New Smyrna beach on the East coast in Florida uh, within sight of Cape Canaveral watching this um, much awaited moonshot on uh, this uh, JFK initiative of let's get somebody on the moon before the end of the decade. Um, So July of 69. And um, you know, it, it was, it was a moonshot. It was that something extraordinary that wouldn't otherwise happen. Both the man landing on the moon and my parents <laughs> getting together and and co- having that conception of me that night. Um, they didn't have the highest quality relationship at that time. Uh, kids were just about to get into school. Mom was just about to get to work. Um, practicing Roman Catholic on birth control, uh, kind of fighting the inner battle there of of the guilt and the conscious around that, but. Um, she got pregnant that night. And, uh, and then I was born April 3rd, 1970. And um, I think the, the good news was that I was a little girl, <laughs> not another boy in the family system. But um, really coming onto this planet um, as a bit of a surprise, not really spinning the story of I was unwanted, but spinning the story of um, it was a miracle that I got here. So that was the moonshot.
1: At what point in your life did you decide that you wanted to help people in this way with psychology and therapy, with counseling, and focusing in particular on relationships?
0: Uh, Probably July of
1: 1969,
0: (laughs) probably the (laughs) point I was conceived.
1: (laughs) You, You think you were born to do this?
0: I feel born to do this. Yeah, I definitely feel an upwelling of emotion as I say that. This is my uh, vocation. This is my calling. I dwell in a tender heart, and I've always wanted to help people in their relationships. And I I already mentioned my parents' relationship. I spent quite a bit of time trying to heal that relationship, even though that wasn't my job, it wasn't the expectation, and quite frankly, it didn't work. And then trying to heal the relationships um, around me, um, whether it was my brother's or um, my friend's just feeling this desire to dive a little deeper, to to get below the surface of UF Gators sports Sunday or Saturday or whatever the, the college football vibe was, whatever the weather was do- doing, whatever politics. It, it just, it all felt superficial and, um, and lacked meaning and felt void of any spiritual significance. Um, so I dwell in the realm of relationship and I often find the opportunity to help others. And I'm learning more more and more how to wait to be asked for that um, (laughs) invite in versus just inserting myself.
1: Well, I can relate to that. It is tempting to want to rush up to someone or to a couple who enters into our life and is struggling and say, I can help you with that. But um They may not be ready for that. They may, for whatever reason, need to go through that. Um, Timing is everything, I guess, is what I'm saying. I also was uh, a child of a dysfunctional family. My parents were divorced when I was 12 years old. Uh, My brother was nine. My sister was five. We didn't have a car uh, after that. My father took the car. My mother had to walk to work. It was horrible. And I look at other people that I know who have come out of situations like that. And some of them broke one way and became very dysfunctional in their own lives. And others may have been just as dysfunctional, but work through it and end up being therapists or counselors or, or trainers of some sort. And One of the things that impressed me about uh, Moonshot is your vulnerability, the way you share your traumas and your heartache. And I think it establishes credibility, you know, from where you speak. When you offer these tools and say, you know, it gets better. (laughs) That's the saying these days, it gets better. There is a way out. And why don't you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yes, thank you. I um, I definitely believe there's a way out. Um, I know the wounded healer archetype um, runs deep in me. Um, the the ability to relate to people and um and grow an even more compassionate heart. Um, whether someone's going through addictions, um, going through difficulty in relationship, you mentioned the codependency earlier. I kind of define that as when loving you is hurting me and that can still happen to this day. There's a stickiness there um, and learning how to set boundaries, learning how to be clear and um, sometimes give people the dignity of their own suffering. That, that doesn't come naturally to me, but what does come naturally is to, um, to be vulnerable as you pointed out and to live with an open heart. And I see that as a choice, Oftentimes, it's, um, it was modeled for me to armor up. It was modeled for me to stuff emotions. It was modeled for me to get over it, get busy, get to work, and get to the next weekend so that we could party and and live life. You know, Wednesday was hump day, and uh, Monday was the worst day of the week. And I didn't understand that, that workaholic. Um, I come from an alcoholic and a workaholic family. And um, I really see that addiction as any activity, substance, process that robs my soul of the beauty of the present moment. And I was tired of not being present uh, in my life. And so um, there was a choice. And I've learned this more and more fully living here in Hawaii, that I can choose to live in the solution or live in the problem. I can live in the aloha, in the compassion, the mercy, the grace, the kindness, the the love. Or I can live in the pilakia, the trauma, the drama, the trouble of any kind. And in every moment, I have that choice. And um, I believe our dominant culture is riddled with pilakia. (laughs) It's riddled with um, hungry ghosts, which in Buddhist psychology we refer to as You know, the pencil thin necks and the bloated bellies, and there's never enough of what we think we want to feel satiated. And we perpetuate our own suffering and we manufacture our own misery. And I was done doing that, it wasn't working for me. And so I quit drinking at the age of 24, which was a pivotal, pivotal choice point in my life. And um, I continued to practice yoga and breath work and explore meditation. And I've been doing that for over 30 years. And I feel like making those choices and recommitting myself, um, I think of it almost like spiritual hygiene. You know, I I floss my teeth every day. (laughs) What am I doing for my spirit? So um, I stay sober. I move my body. I give those issues um, that are in my tissues a way out. And um, I'm willing to to be more and more vulnerable to um, dive below the trauma below the drama, and um, relax into my true nature, that true essence of of love.
1: Yeah. I was thinking the other day, actually, a conversation with a friend. We were talking about the fight-or-flight response and that we actually have an area of the brain that is devoted to fear. And if we look at the two motives, fear and love, one is moving away from one is moving toward why is fear so much more tenacious well why is it more why is it more uh, sticky why do we hold on to it reach out and grip i mean we call it being stuck and it may feel like fear is holding on to us but we're really holding on to it and maybe it's just because we've got this amygdala in our brain that is devoted to being afraid very very Afraid, so afraid that allowing ourselves to let go and trust love is scary, and then we double back into the fear again. How, how do you break out of that cycle, Amy?
0: Right. I think it's it's through developing our consciousness and um, that self awareness, because. The fear response, the amygdala, our limbic system is hardwired for our survival. So for me, um, when I could let go of fearing my fear or being angry at my anger or being sad that I was sad again and actually feel the pure energy behind these emotions as they arise and have greater awareness, greater vocabulary greater vulnerability and willingness to connect with others. As you said at the beginning, you know, we are social creatures. We are, we are hardwired for connection. We attune with each other. I used to think, you know, for years as I was getting sober and studying contemplative psychotherapy at the Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, and writing and, you know, doing, doing the hard soul-searching work, I thought, I've got to learn how to take care of myself. I got to learn how to self-soothe. I have to heal my trauma. And I'd go on these solitary retreats in the mountains in Colorado, you know, or the beaches in Florida. Um, And I realized that just doing me in isolation wasn't getting me where I wanted to go. And then um, studying the quantum physics, studying imago relationship theory, which really is exploring more in depth how, yes, I'm my own island. So I think of my own sovereignty and how do, I, how do I take care of me and self-soothe to the best of my ability through what I talked about earlier, the breath and the yoga and the staying sober. How do I stay connected and curious and attuned to the other in a way that we are both a particle, we are our separate selves, and we are that wave and we are connected. And, you know, in Imago, Harville Hendricks talks about it as the wavicle maybe other quantum physics call it that. I, that word is is new to me, but I just know there are moments where I feel that tight constriction of just being me. And then I feel the moment of getting lost in you. And the sweet spot is in the middle of just that dance of, yes, I can self-regulate and who I'm around is is part of my nervous system. There's no clear boundary. <laughs> There's that interdependent sort of reality that we're all connected. And so I kind of got lost in the answer of whatever the question was, because I'm kind of doing that dance as we talk. But um, that's, that's kind of how I see it, that it, it's important to take care of myself, but also be responsible for, for those around and what energy I'm bringing into whatever situation I'm, I'm entering. Does that make sense, Michael? Yes,
1: yeah, certainly. Um, in fact, it's a beautiful entree to where I want to go, uh, my question had to do with why is fear more tenacious or more or more sticky, right. uh, it more appealing in a bizarre way uh, than love. But I bring it up because in relationships, we often say the nastiest, meanest things to the people we love the most as if they were our enemy, when in fact, it's our beloved. Right. And that strange contradiction doesn't seem to occur to a lot of folks. Like, why do I, when I become angry or frustrated, irritated, humiliated, insulted, whatever, do I do this 180 and look on my partner, my my husband, my wife, my lover, my best friend, as if they are an enemy and I have all this adrenaline and cortisol to prepare me for battle. And you said consciousness. Part of raising consciousness through meditation and yoga and, and, and journaling and, and therapy is to, you said it in your book, stop when you're triggered. I think that's such a great line, Amy. Explain that. What does it mean to stop when you're triggered?
0: Yeah. It's when you feel that flood of whatever fear, fear feels like in your body. You know, for some of us, we shut down, we go into a cave and we try to protect ourselves and armor up. For others of us, we maximize our energy and we get louder and bigger and raise our voice and try to be heard. It's, it's having the awareness of what's happening in the moment and stopping it, <laughs> you know, noticing the noticing of, oh, OK, I have a choice right now and to bring ourselves back online. And so I think it is tied to the fear kind of hijacking us um, to make sure we're safe. And we need to stop the the story that we attach to whatever's going on in the moment and remind ourselves that we're safe. And I don't think we can just do it through talking. I think it's an embodied response. So I literally will look over my right shoulder and I will say, I am safe. And I will pause and I'll look over my left shoulder and take a breath and say, I am safe. And that stops that discursive thinking, those obscurations of the mind that tell me, oh, my husband's an enemy. Because choosing to see him as an enemy is a choice. And I need to stop and remember, wait a minute, that's not going to get me where I want to go.
1: Well, it's a reflex. It's an unconscious choice. I like the uh, the way Viktor Frankl explains it in Man's Search for Meaning. He said, between stimulus and response is a space. Right. And if we can open up that space instead of, you know, just acting out of impulse, out of a a reflexive response, and substitute even-tempered, well-reasoned responses for those knee-jerk reactions, that makes all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah. But people have to understand why they're doing it because most people would rather live in a predictable hell than have a taste of heaven and lose it. And knowing that you have choice, knowing that you're empowered and you can choose to not react so um, aggressively <laughs> is a choice and it's, it's freeing, it's liberating. To me, that's heaven. That's, that's, I want more of that. But um, the warm wash of righteous indignation, the warm wash of rage, the warm wash of judgment and contempt Those are tough energies to override if we fuel them with our storylines. Yeah.
1: That's a great point. In other words, our suffering, our self imposed suffering is familiar. We go there because it's familiar. Yep. And that's very bizarre. Yeah. (laughs) Very strange once you reflect on it. Let's take a short break and come back with more. My guest is Amy Elizabeth Gordon and her book. It's called Moonshot, Aim High, Dive Deep, and Live an Extraordinary Life. And we'll be back with more on relationships right after this. You're listening to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School on KPFK. 90.7 FM is KPFK in Los Angeles, actually for all of Southern California, from Santa Barbara to San Diego, and then some streaming for the world. At kpfk.org. My name's Michael Benner, and this is the Wisdom School. My guest today, Amy Elizabeth Gordon, is with us from the Big Island in Hawaii, and we're talking about her book Moonshot. We're discussing relationships. What tools, or tips, or techniques can you share about improving communication? In relationships, I think this is the the request that I get more often than not when people have a concern about their primary loving relationships is not feeling heard, much less understood. That winning an argument, if there is such a thing, uh, trying to be right gets in the way of really hearing and understanding. Can you talk about that? How how do we get that straightened out? If we follow your advice and stop when we're triggered and make a choice and initiate a response instead of just act reflexively, what are we to say to the other person?
0: Yeah, I think it's a great question. I would I would echo what you're saying, that it is the most common complaint. You know, I work with couples. I work with individuals. I work with people trying to get um, clean and sober from addictions. But my favorite playground, if you will, to, to play in is the space between um, two partners that are involved in a romantic relationship. Um, a higher level conscious partnership is where I'm helping to guide them as a relational health coach. And the idea of not being heard, the the idea of conflict, the idea of wanting to resolve that conflict comes up all the time. And first things first, I invite people to reframe how they're seeing it and to understand that conflict is growth trying to happen. That when you are actually triggered, you know, my invitation earlier was to calm yourself down Gosh, sometimes you can't do that in the moment. But what if you had a partner that said, hey, let's take a break. Let's walk around the block and we'll come back and talk in 20 minutes. Um, Somebody that was advocating for your well-being. What energy becomes available to you then? What possibilities are there? So being able to calm down in the moment. Being able to notice the nonverbal communication, because so many times we focus on what is it that somebody's saying and are they getting me? And we interrupt and we think we know what they're going to say. And there's like four conversations going on at one time what you think <laughs> the person is saying, what they're actually saying, how you're hearing it, and then how you're going to respond. And it just takes a lot of energy, Michael. And I think people are exhausted. I think people are done. They're resigning to ho-hum, well, at least we didn't fight today, but there's that lack of invigorating higher level conscious partnership. And so just paying attention to the nonverbal ways you interact, maybe start by softening your eyes instead of that stare or that grimace or those raised eyebrows. We communicate so much with our eyes. And so just imagine softening the eyes. If you're still feeling triggered or agitated, really tighten that fist. Feel it, feel it, feel it. Try to take a deep breath with your dominant hand, tight, balled up in a fist. It's really hard to do. Release the pinch. Release the grip. (sighs) A bigger breath comes in. Breathing in through the nose, taps into the parasympathetic nervous system. What does all that mean? It means you can calm yourself down. And then the technique for the communication My favorite technique is the intentional dialogue that I coach people in where you actually have a sender and a receiver and you mirror back what each other is saying. You validate, you empathize, and you take turns in this very safe container. Because remember, as I said earlier, we're all longing for safety, whether we realize it or not. And safety is a prerequisite for that healthy connection. So I think the intentional dialogue is... Is an incredible asset. And and then my favorite phrase <laughs> that I use with my husband, because I'm constantly thinking, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? <laughs> I actually would rather be happy, believe it or not. <laughs> so I will say to him, You might be right. And now we just kind of chuckle. It's like we, <laughs> we just start laughing. Like, I'm throwing the white flag here. I am surrendering to win because battling, armoring up, defending myself, attacking that sort of power over mentality that's been perpetuated in our dominant culture. It's not getting us where we want to go. We get to release the pinch, release the armor, surrender to win and really um, meet each other where we are in a, in a new and transformative way. And I'm living and breathing and, and feeling the rewards of that. My husband and I are about to celebrate 20 years of, of committed conscious partnership. And it's, it's blowing my mind. <laughs> I, I can't believe it. It's, it's, um, it's definitely a, a, a an amazing, amazing thing in my life. I'm, I have more blessings in my life than I can say grace over for sure.
1: My wife and I have been together over 30 years. And when someone asks, you know, how do you do it? I think the simple answer for me anyway, is forgiveness. Just, yes, You know, letting it go. We get so worked up, so melodramatic and defensive over such trivial things that a day later you cannot remember, usually, what it was that you were arguing about. Right. Well, if that's the case, then the strength or the power and the emotion is never about, or rarely, I don't want to say never, but usually is not about what it appears to be about, but it's triggering something else, something perhaps very, very old. It was my wife's defensiveness that introduced me to my own defensiveness, and then I asked myself one day, who am I defending and why? And from my study of Eastern philosophy, I began to question the whole concept of self. You know, Buddhists talk a lot about self-grasping ignorance and emptiness, and are we this separated, alienated self after all? Or are we an element or a fragment or a facet of the all that is? Well, I much prefer that idea. I like the the idea of harmony and unity in I mean, the the ecosystem, if nothing else, introduces us to the idea of unity, just one body. The spread of COVID, my God, I understand there's a science station in Antarctica that is now filled with COVID in Antarctica. I mean, imagine, uh, we are obviously one body, except maybe it's just not that obvious. Maybe, Maybe it's not obvious at all. But... Speak to me a bit about defensiveness. Who do you think we're defending, and why do we become so defensive? With with somebody that, you know, we've taken vows with, we're sworn to live with for, you know, to the end of time.
0: Right. Well, I'm going to carefully try to weave together all of the salient points that you just brought up because, first of all, our reactivity to each other I like to think of it as if I'm hysterical, it's historical. Like if my reaction to whatever is going on in the moment is far overblown, whatever it is, it's most likely linked to something in my past. So if I can just remember that, like, oh, this is not about the present moment. And then if I carry it to the next step, which you were saying, you know, you're, you're, you know what you saw in your wife, you saw in yourself. I like to put that in this little saying of you spot it, you've got it. So whatever you see in somebody else that annoys you, it's in you. And whatever you admire about somebody else, it's in you. Now you may have lost track of it. It may be hidden. It may be lost. It may be a denied aspect of self. And then that whole idea of, is there a separate self? No, I think we are all interconnected. It's back to that, you know, particle and the wave and the wavicle. So why do we um, defend was the question. And I think We're defending against our own wholeness We're. it reminds me one time, Michael, I was in, um, I was in Italy. I was in Venice and I was on a water taxi and I got on and, and there was this, this sign. It was almost like a little billboard in the water taxi and it was in English and it said, protect me from what I want. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what does it mean? Protect me from what I want. And, and I think, um, I think on some fundamental level we we all want to be free, we want we want that joyous liberation of just being, you know, being, being Amy, I want to just be Amy. And growing up from my mother, bless her heart, over and over again, I heard, Oh, Amy, Oh, Amy, you know, and it was kind of this judging sort of dismissive quality of my core nature of who I was, like, It wasn't okay to be emotional or be thin-skinned or be so sensitive. I told you the the environment I grew up in was to kind of get over all that, but I didn't. I dove more fully into it, and I quit defending myself from that. And I find that the core of my dis-ease in life is that self-aggression, that thinking that I should be something other than I am. And when I dwell in that place, I'm manufacturing my own misery. My, my brain is hyper alert and scanning the environment for anyone else who might think that I'm not okay in this moment. So that little kerfuffle, that little discord, disagreement in the kitchen with my husband turns into a really big deal because I think he's assassinating my character and he's telling me I'm not okay. And it, it's, it's fueling, it's amplifying, it's turning the volume up on that story within me that tells me that I'm not enough. And just turning on social media tells me I'm not enough. Just going out into the world tells me I'm not enough because here we can do anything we want, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and be an individual and make it on your own. And and I have failed. I have I have had failed experiences. I am not a failure, but I've had failed experiences in a lot of areas of my life. And I feel um, successful beyond measure because of my spiritual life. And so it's it's letting go of what, what I think I need to defend against. And again, I'll repeat, just surrendering to win, which, you know, this language may sound um, a bit out there because I don't hear it talked about very much. And I always enjoy talking with you, Michael, because I feel like we kind of get into this certain vibe where we get each other. So thank you for asking the question. I hope I answered it sufficiently.
1: Indeed. Listening to it occurs to me that so much of this Begins in our childhood. And there's a reason we have an image of the Viennese psychoanalyst stroking his goatee and saying, Well, tell me about your childhood. Uh, if there were some way that we could quickly and thoroughly teach people when you become a parent, these little children are not to be dismissed or discounted as foolish, silly, immature beings, though they may act that way from time to time. Their feelings are as significant to them as yours are to you at any age in adulthood. And if only parents could sit and listen to the children and encourage them to express their emotions. Give them permission to be vulnerable. I was never allowed to cry. If I cried, I was threatened. No son of mine. Mm, Ouch, yeah. That stuff. And then my football coach would mock us saying, all right, ladies, let's not wrinkle our pretty little party dresses now. And the worst thing you can call a little boy is a girl, because that means you're somehow feminine. Like, that's a bad thing, right? To be weak, I guess that's the implication. And so we armor ourselves. And I'm, I'm speaking now here as a man growing up as a boy child, having all of this armor, and then in my late 20s going into a year and a half of intensive therapy to find out what an emotion was, and imagine my surprise to find out that I could actually feel feelings in my body. I had no idea. I thought emotions were something you thought about in your head. I didn't (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know you could actually feel it in your body, and only then could I release it. And my therapist had to teach me as a young man how to cry the tears that I was never allowed to cry as a little boy and deal with the fear of what would happen to me if I cried and was vulnerable and admitted that I was afraid. Why shouldn't I be afraid? We're afraid as adults. Why wouldn't a four-year-old or an eight-year-old or a twelve-year-old be afraid? Right.
0: Yeah, I think the um, issues around parenting, and um, you know, I've done a lot of of personal work on that. I'm I'm grateful to be the mom of a fourteen-year-old and a seventeen-year-old, and I use these skills of the dialogue and the emotional attunement and honoring their unique sovereignty, as well as staying connected to them in a way of, um, of healing those old wounds. You know, we started this conversation with, you know, we go through life, we have trauma, some of us just continue to perpetuate that trauma. And some of us do the deeper dive and transform and become the healers or the medicine for the world that's needed. And I don't know what happens in that choice point. I I think my ego wants to take credit for that. But there's some other, (laughs) there's something else at work there. But I'm grateful I made that choice. I'm grateful um, that I can, as a parent coach and a life coach, help others really know that how they were held does not have to predetermine how they hold others or how they hold themselves. And so I start with, and I talk about this in my book, Moonshot, the first distinction of an extraordinary life is trust, trust in the inherent worth and dignity in each and every one of us, starting with yourself. And trust yourself to no longer abandon yourself, and people are like, "What does that mean?" And I say simply, "What time do you want to go to bed tonight? Ten o'clock? Okay, put yourself to bed at ten o'clock tonight. Keep your word with yourself and see what starts to happen. You may start to trust your 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 partner and your kids a little more because you're trusting yourself instead of that. I'll wait until you know what if they they would only do it and and creating that disgruntlement so I really think that, um, that there is hope, that there is a consciousness shift happening. Um, I was reminded that I believe it's 3.5% of the population engaged in um, peaceful protest or nonviolent protest against something is the tipping point to make things shift. And so um, I seek that out. And I'm grateful here in Hawaii to be reminded of that. We're working hard on regenerating the environment, looking at how we're doing tourism now, how we're um, planting trees, how we're taking care of our water systems, because our inner environment is reflected in our outer environment. And the change agent is our relationships, our relationships with ourselves and others. And so, you know, the energy that comes up whatever it is to really honor it, to bow to it and see what is this teaching me, you know, and thank goodness you had that experience in your twenties, Michael, to be able to have the freedom to feel the feelings, allow the emotions to wash through you and learn from them. May it be so that we can, we can teach our children that sooner. And, um, you know, for me here, I, I look at Pele and when she's, um, erupting and Kilauea volcano is flowing and we can think, oh, it's so destructive. It's so awful. And then we can pause and say, or is it? What do we know? It's also incredibly creative. We have more coastline on the east coast of the island now than we did before. That destructive energy can reestablish boundaries and set right things that are wrong and be a creative mystery. And more and more, I realize I know less and less. More and more, less and less, more and more, less and less. And there's a sweet surrender there too. So, what I want to leave your listeners with is this idea of possibility of transformation. Um, I've been thinking about the word transmutation lately, you know, really regenerating what we want to see this world look like because we're given a lot of opportunities right now, whether it's how we interact with a child, actually kneeling down and getting with them at eye level, opening our hearts to our beloved and saying, I see you, you know, and, and watering the seeds of contentment and love within our own store consciousness, within our own selves and um, within others. I do believe we can shift the drift and um, heal the planet one relationship at a time. And uh, I'm, I'm still weaving that lay of aloha around the world. I, I hope to offer in-person retreats once again when the time comes, maybe February, 2023. Um, but in the meantime, I am doing a, a number of things online. If people are interested, resonating with what I'm saying, um, or even not, I'd love to hear from you. Um, you can check me out at my website, help. Well, my email is help at Amy And my website is simply my full name
1: www.amieelizabethgordon.com, and the book is being shot, available everywhere. Amy, it's a joy chatting with you. You inspire me, and uh, I find this exciting. I want to do more. I wish, uh, I wish I could attend one of your workshops. Let me know if and and when that's possible. This COVID thing has got to pass uh, sooner or later. Amy Elizabeth Gordon. My guest today, her book is Moonshot, and uh, gosh, Amy, thank you so, so very much, mahalo and aloha and peace and love and blessings and happy new year and all that is good. And uh, I'd love to have you back on sometime a few months down the road.
0: I'd be honored to join you again. Thank you so much for what you're doing and getting getting the good word out there. Um, I admire your work and appreciate your presence on this planet, Michael. I wish you the very best. Aloha.
1: Aloha, Amy, and uh, thanks for listening. This is the Wisdom School on KPFK. We're all out of time, got to run, so let me just say, as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner on KPFK.